Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the news from Charleston has been a grim reminder that there's still unresolved issues of race and what it means in this country. A national tragedy, Mark, nine people gunned down in an iconic church that means so much to the people in Charleston, South Carolina, a racially motivated crime, and, and a reminder, we have so much work to do to promote unity among the nation's people. If there's a silver lining, I think it's today we're seeing a much more frank discussion of racism and its impact on society as a whole, starting with the president's words on the topic and maybe continuing on to bringing down that Confederate flag over the Capitol. As you know, Margaret, community health centers began in this country initially to address at least some of those disparities by providing access to health care for all racial and ethnic minorities, as well as those citizens who are economically disadvantaged. We learned from that experience that good health outcomes, well-being, productivity, and most importantly, dignity, no matter what your circumstances, are the true pathway to equality in this country. That is so true, Mark. And as we know, all of these social determinants have a huge impact on health, access to health care, healthy foods, clean housing, safe neighborhoods. So many of these issues directly impact health and well-being. It's something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Kenneth Brigham is Professor Emeritus at Emory University School of Medicine. He was director of the Emory Georgia Tech Predictive Health Institute, which is focused in on identifying genetic biomarkers and other precursors of disease that can be staved off to keep people healthier, no matter what their circumstances. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. As always, if you have comments, you can email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Kenneth Brigham in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Obesity is on the rise in the U.S. In a report released by the Journal of the American Medical Association, the National Health and Nutrition Survey noted nearly 40 percent of men and 30 percent of women were overweight, while nearly 35 percent of men and 37 percent of women were considered obese. The researchers concluded overweight and obesity rates in the U.S. have increased over the past two decades, the greatest increase in the proportion of individuals with BMIs greater than 40 the highest obesity class among African-American women. While obesity has increased in many states, there's a leveling off as well in some subpopulations, especially in interventive programs dealing with children. Dr. Jeffrey Levy, executive director of the Trust for America's Health, says in areas where there are preventive programs put in place, you can actually impact the prevention of obesity. Trans fats have long been identified as having potential deleterious effects on the body, long used as an additive in processed foods. The FDA has issued a dramatic ruling that trans fats need to be phased out of food production. Food manufacturers have been given a three-year timeline to remove trans fats from their food supplies. 19 million, the number of Americans projected to lose health coverage under the Affordable Care Act in the event that the Supreme Court votes against upholding tax subsidies to offset the cost of purchasing insurance in the 37 states with no state-based exchange. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office looked at the near-term and long-term effects of such a ruling and found over time that number of uninsured would grow to 24 million. 
CBO also projected a repeal would increase the federal deficit by $353 billion over 10 years because of higher direct federal spending on health programs. While women's reproductive rights are taking a hit in many states, California is making things a bit easier. The state legislature considered the measure that would allow women to go straight to a pharmacist for birth control. Under the new state law, women will be able to go to the pharmacy, get a prescription for contraceptive pills, the ring patch, and get it filled and walk out 15 minutes later. Studies have shown in environments where access to birth control is unfettered, unintended pregnancies go down. And recent statistics show a rise in births in this country by about 56,000 babies born. Interesting alternative statistic, teen pregnancies are down overall, except in the South, where they have actually gone slightly up. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Kenneth Brigham, a professor emeritus at the Emory University School of Medicine and former founder and director of the Emory Georgia Tech Predictive Health Institute, an interdisciplinary model of healthcare that focuses on prevention and health maintenance rather than disease management. Dr. Brigham is a pulmonologist who served as an associate vice president of Emory University School of Medicine. Prior to joining Emory in 2002, Dr. Brigham served at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine for several decades where he focused in on innovation in pulmonary care. Dr. Brigham is author or co-author of more than 200 papers and books, including Gene Therapy for Disease of the Lung and Predictive Health, How We Can Reinvent Medicine to Extend Our Best Years. Dr. Brigham earned his medical degree from Vanderbilt and trained in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins and pulmonary research at UC San Francisco School of Medicine. Dr. Brigham, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to talk with you. Yeah, and you've been leading the way at Emory uh, in this interdisciplinary approach to really fostering a new way uh, to practice medicine, and one founded on the premise that to prevent the onset of disease, we must develop models that help predict which conditions are most likely with each individual patient. And this predictive health is a model that really couldn't have existed uh, just a few short years ago, uh, but recent technological advances have really paved the way. Can you tell our audience about the predictive health and how it differs from the general view uh, as preventative care? And uh, tell tell us a little more about the work that you did at Emory uh, with the Georgia Tech Predictive Health Institute. The way the institute came about was related to a campus-wide effort to develop a strategic plan and in the academic medical enterprise, the question that was paramount was, what could we do at Emory with all the resources and the environment, including Georgia Tech and the CDC, and that would be innovative and would contribute to a direction for health care that, that would impact both the cost and the benefit of uh, efforts in health care? And that, those discussions involve the whole campus. They involve not just the biomedical sciences, uh, both basic and clinical, but also uh, psychologists, anthropologists. What emerged was uh, two things. One was that uh, medicine traditionally has not defined what health is. If you talk about keeping people healthy, what we've meant traditionally was keeping them from getting sick. And uh, the contention was that 
uh, health could be defined in a positive sense, and that if we could measure uh, critical variables that define what health is over time, that we might be able to detect early deviations in processes that, if uh, left unattended, might develop into a pathological situation. So then the, the thought turned to, well, what, how could we begin to implement that sort of that sort of thing, and that's where the Predictive Health Institute and what we wound up calling the Center for Health Discovery and Well-Being came about, and and that was a cohort of people who were essentially healthy that uh, got an enormous number of of tests that uh, looked at both their emotional state as well as everything we could measure about their physical state, uh, and followed them over time, and they've been followed now for, I guess, about eight or nine years. The hope was that by doing that, we'd be able to identify measurable variables that would be predictive on an individual basis. Now, how does it differ from preventive care? You know, preventive care is really a a public health activity. It's a population-based rationale and, and implementation. And predictive health focuses more on individuals and trying to predict with more precision than population data allows you to translate into uh, to risk for a given individual. Well, Dr. Brigham, I'd like to delve um, a little deeper into this notion that if you start with generally healthy people, do a battery of diagnostic tests and identify potential health pitfalls for each individual patient based on their their particular profile, you have a fighting chance to maybe keep them from developing diseases that they were headed towards or at least delaying those diseases for as long as possible. So tell us more about this approach that you launched at the Predictive Health Institute, uh, which was a collaboration with the folks at Georgia Institute of Technology. Maybe tell us about what the experience was like for the participants in your early cohorts at the center, the specific kinds of testing these participants were exposed to, and how is the experience different from what patients are accustomed to so, so the basic idea was to focus on health, that, that these were not patients uh, because they weren't sick. They were people who, who were going to be uh, treated as healthy people in an effort to define what, what that actually means. So the uh, facility that we actually designed didn't look like a doctor's office at all. It had sort of a water treatment and the muted colors and a lot of art and and the people who actually were hands-on involved with these uh, participants were a new kind of health professional that we called a health partner to emphasize that both defining and caring for your health is a partnership. And these are people who were, who were trained uh, much like a health coach. In fact, they went through a health coaching curriculum and actually performed the tests in the facility as well as served as a source of information and advice and so forth to the individuals and maintained a relationship with them over time. So it was a very different experience than the usual doctor's office or hospital interface with people who are sick. So we wanted to measure everything we possibly could. We did collect a battery of questionnaires that addressed um, well-being, emotional health, uh, social support, a variety of validated questionnaires that did that. And then, then we drew blood and measured a battery of biochemical measurements 
including uh, banking DNA and RNA uh, for uh, analysis at a later time. And then we did a, um, a bone scan and a, a percent body fat measurement and then put all that data together. And then the collaboration with Georgia Tech, it, it's obvious early on that this kind of an effort is going to require computers to try to integrate into a model that would then uh, be applicable to an individual and, and predictive uh, for an individual. So that has, uh, has been an extremely valuable collaboration and, and was there from the very beginning. Speaking of uh, collaborations, you've had a great collaboration uh, with Dr. Uh, Michael Johns, and the two of you wrote uh, Predictive Health. The the book begins with a basic description of the century of care that remained relatively unchanged to where we are now in what you call the vortex of discovery with great advances in genomics and uh, and nanotechnology. Tell us what the biggest successes are so far and what have posed the biggest challenges it's no secret that we're in a vortex of discovery in biomedicine. Everybody knows that. Ends at faster rate, it seems. And we can measure things we could never measure before. And we can define individuality at a molecular level that is really uh, spectacular and, and amazing. And with each advance in the science and the technology, there are even more things we can measure that that will help to define individuality, actually, and, and also help to define risks in individual people. The, the challenge with that, in my mind, is that we don't get ahead of ourselves, that we don't either over-anticipate or over-promise what scientific uh, discovery mm-hmm. and technological advance can actually do to keep people healthier at the front lines where you guys work, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a risk, and I think there is evidence that there is a, a segment of people in our profession who are really <laughs> headed in that direction at a, at a rate that is uh, too fast. So I think that is a challenge, is integrating these major advances in science and technology uh, into a practical system that can be applied to the health care of individual people. You ask about what are the things on the horizon. One is imaging. I mean, the ability to image not just uh, morphology, but also function even uh, down to the cellular level will provide some tools that we can't even imagine the, the uses of at the moment. Well, you're absolutely right. There are days when just managing multiple chronic illnesses in patients, uh, uh, keeping them out of the hospital, this can feel like a great achievement, even while we are fully aware of the explosion of science and technology that might give us the benefit of of this uh, predictive value in preventing illness. But incorporating it is, is a daunting challenge to practices, but it has to be built on top of a culture change. And I'm Really curious, uh, what's your perspective, you know, beyond incentives and health reform and some of the disruptive technologies, how do we incorporate this uh, into the healthcare system uh, that we have today? Yeah, I think there are two uh, components of the answer that that are important. One is education. I, I think both the way we uh, – what, what we include in our education of healthcare professionals and – uh, educating the public uh, are are both incredibly important as we try to reorient the focus of healthcare to health 
rather than disease. Now, you know, there will always be sick people and always will. And so the need for doctors who care for sick people will never go away. What we would hope over the long term, if we could change the culture so that people focused more on on their health while they're healthy, would be that we would reduce the burden of uh, sick people over the long haul. The, the other imperative for doing that is cost, is that the, the cost of caring for people with chronic illness is enormous. And advances in science and technology that improve care of those people often increase the cost. So if you could decrease the burden of those kinds of people in the whole healthcare system, then that would have an impact on the, on the cost. We're speaking today with Dr. Kenneth uh, Brigham, uh, Professor Emeritus at the Emory University School of Medicine and former director of the Emory Georgia Tech Predictive Health Institute, an interdisciplinary model of healthcare that focuses on prevention and health maintenance rather than disease management. Dr. Brigham is a renowned pulmonologist. Dr. Brigham, did I hear you right that you had a large ongoing longitudinal study underway. I was thinking, as you were saying that, about the Framingham Heart Study started in 1948, continuing uh, with a couple of uh, different phases over the years. Is it sort of based on trying to take a look at the health and well-being of people uh, over a longer period of time? Yes, it is. And the the Framingham study obviously is the jewel of this kind of Mm -hmm, study. So this is on a much smaller scale. This is a couple of hundred uh, people who were randomly selected from the Emory and Georgia Tech faculty, actually, who were essentially healthy and are being followed uh, over over time with a very extensive testing. So it is it is a similar, like the big population studies like Framingham, except it's much more individually focused. We would like to be able to bring more precision mm-hmm. to the predictive process. So it's, it's trying to bring more precision to the goal of predicting. Well, Dr. Brigham, uh, in your book, Predictive Health, you say that to change the course of healthcare, we have to reach the coming generations. At Emory, you've done some of that recalibration. I believe you call your approach Molecules to Mankind, or M2M. <laughs> and we've talked to some of the teaching hospitals and medical schools who've begun a serious transformation of their approach to health education. So how do we start teaching predictive health in medical schools? My personal bias is that we really need a completely different way to look at educating healthcare professionals. I think that we probably need to define roles in a different way than we have before. Uh, We probably don't need physicians as traditionally trained disease managers to do everything that you guys do now. There are probably other people in this health-focused system who who could be just as effective and maybe more effective because their training and focus would be much more narrow than uh, traditionally trained uh, physicians. So I think that's one thing. We need to look at roles and train people to do what we want them to do (laughs) in in the long run. as I said, there will always be a need for uh, doctors to take care of sick people, and so there needs to be continued training of people who are expert in the rapidly developing science and technology of caring for disease. But even those people ought to get a healthy dose of health-focused 
approach is to uh, to caring for people. So I think roles need to be defined and and thought needs to be given to what kinds of people we need to train to fill the roles that are going to be needed for this health-focused system. But also, everybody who's training for a health care uh, profession needs to be oriented toward the idea that the real goal is to keep people healthy. Uh, I think it's been said that knowing someone's zip code may have more to do with their health than uh, knowing their genetic code. And I'm certainly thinking about community health workers. And you've been really focused in on issues around environment and health. And, uh, you know, certainly we're seeing climate control. However Mm -hmm. it's uh, happening, it's happening. And Mm -hmm. uh, certainly raising uh, the level of health concerns in various communities. Uh, talk to us about the revolutionary change that's needed, uh, not just in the predictive health practices, but uh, in promoting environmental health as well. Yeah, policymakers need to be acutely aware of uh, how important environment is to the health of everybody and also understanding the, the individual interactions with their environment and what are the characteristics of an individual that determines their environment, really, or or at least the biologic response to it. So I think there are two pieces to that. If we could understand the biology-environment interactions, that would be a major advance in trying to design what can be done about the environment. We know a lot of what can be done (laughs) about the environment that that will reduce uh, uh, health risk Mm -hmm. in people who are exposed to it, and that, that really is an educational and a public policy and a public health uh, activity. And uh, that's where public health has really made a huge difference in the health of of mankind. I mean, flush toilets, clean water, actually cigarette smoking uh, is a real triumph, I think. Not as effective as we'd like it to be, but it has had a major effect. Public health policy can uh, change the environmental exposures that uh, that result in an unhealthy consequence for people. So I think that's education and public policy. And mm-hmm. I think we in the healthcare profession uh, ought to be activists in that regard. I mean, we, we ought to be doing everything we can to throw the rascals mm-hmm. out if they don't <laughs> do the right thing and to uh, promote policies that, uh, that make the environment healthier. I, I think Climate change is one of the major challenges for the coming generation, and I don't know what the outcome of that's going to be, but it's not going to make us healthier. Well, Dr. Brigham, I know that you've had, you have the perspective of a, a long lens uh, on all of the developments in science, and just curious, this is a, just a maybe ask you to pine uh, if you have a thought about it. I was recently re-listening to a TED Talk by Dr. Nadine Burke uh, and uh, listening to her work on the effect of average childhood events on long-term health and mm-hmm. the predictive ability uh, that uh, she sees and the folks who did that original uh, study uh, that preceded her work showing that uh, children who are exposed to these adverse childhood events have a cumulative risk of developing diseases that we've not traditionally associated with Average social childhood events, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Four times the risk of developing COPD, eight times the risk of developing heart disease. Where where does that fit into uh, when you think of the work you're doing in the predictive modeling arena? Where do those adverse 
uh, social, personal, environmental. We're not talking here, you know, bad air or bad water, but toxicity in the personal environment of the individual. Where do you think that fits in with, with this work? Yeah, incredibly important. I, I'm trained as an internist, but in fact, predictive health is really a pediatric problem <laughs> uh, and, and probably a prenatal problem. I mean, the, even in utero experiences probably have effects on what happens later in life and what, what the risks are. If, if we could understand those processes, there would be an opportunity to intervene very early uh, and the, the chance to impact uh, adult health uh, it, from that direction is enormous if we could understand the processes and and intervene at a childhood level. But there really should be a very intense focus on childhood experiences as well as uh, diet and other things that, uh, that are of interest in terms of determining health. We've been speaking with Dr. Uh, Kenneth Brigham, a Professor Emeritus at Emory University School of Medicine and co-founder of the Emory Georgia Tech Predictive Health Institute. You can learn more about their work by going to predictivehealth.emory.edu slash CDH or follow them on Twitter at Emory Medicine. Dr. Brigham, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Every three months, we take a look at what we call Obama's Numbers, a statistical record of Obama's time in office. And that now includes an update on how many have gained insurance under the Affordable Care Act. The administration says that 16 million people have gained coverage because of the law. That number is based on polling by the Gallup organization and includes an estimated 14.1 million adults who gained coverage from October 2013, the start of the first open enrollment period for the ACA exchanges, through the beginning of March of this year. The other 2.3 million in the administration's total are young adults aged 19 through 25 who previously gained coverage after the law began requiring that insurance plans allow children to remain on their parents' plans until age 26. The National Center for Health Statistics, meanwhile, estimated that only 11.9% of all Americans lacked health insurance at the time they were interviewed last year. That's down from 14.4% in 2013. But it still leaves an estimated 37.2 million without insurance. The NCHS numbers are preliminary, based on interviews conducted during the first nine months of 2014. The Urban Institute's Health Reform Monitoring Survey looks at the uninsured who are ages 18 to 64. In that age group, an estimated 9.7 million gained coverage between September 2013 and December 2014, according to the quarterly survey. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's a known fact that the current generation of American children is more obese than any previous generation. And at a Washington, D.C. community health center, Unity Healthcare, a pediatrician was in a quandary over how to tackle this growing health scourge. He began with a unique solution targeted to a teen patient whose body mass index, or BMI, had already landed her in the obese category. What he did was write a prescription for getting off the bus one stop earlier on her way to school, which made her walk the equivalent of one mile a day. Dr. Robert Zarr of Unity Community Health Center understood that without motivation to move more, kids just might not do it. The patient complied with the prescription and has moved from the obese down to the overweight category, certainly an improvement. He then decided to expand this program by working with the D.C. Parks Department, mapping out all the potential walks and play area kids have within the city's parks, mapping 380 of them so far. How to get there, parking, is parking available if someone's going to drive, bike racks, there's a section on pets, park safety. Dr. Zar writes park prescriptions on a special prescription pad in English and Spanish with the words RX for outdoor activity and a schedule slot that asks, when and where will you play outside this week? I like to listen and find out what it is my patients like to do and then gauge the parks I prescribe based on their interests, based on their schedule, based on the things they're willing to do. Ultimately, Dr. Zar says, with some 40% of his patient population grappling with overweight or obesity, he wants to make the prescription for outdoor activity adaptable for all of his patients and adaptable for pediatricians around the country. He's planning to create an app for his parks database where providers and patients alike can use it. And one day, he'd like to be able to track his patients' activities in the parks. Rx for outdoor activity, partnering clinicians, park administrators, patients, and the families to move more, yielding fitter, healthier young people. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.